Welcome to the Class of 1987 podcast. I'm your host, Tim Harkness. On this podcast, we will be speaking with members of the Yale College Class of 1987 about their lives, where they've been, where they are now, and where they are going. We plan to cover a wide range of topics and have people who represent the full range of our class's experience. The class of 1987 is the best class that Yale College has ever had, and we're here to celebrate that. So sit back and listen to what your classmates have to say. And welcome to the next edition of the Y87 podcast. With me today is Kristen Hoganson, one of our classmates. Welcome. Hi, Tim. Thanks so much for having me and for doing this whole series. It's been great listening to the ones you've done already. Oh, great. Well, it's been fun to do. It's fun to catch up with everyone. Why don't you tell everybody where you are and what you're up to these days? Yeah, so I'm in East Central Illinois in uh, Champaign County, and I am a professor of history at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. What kind of stuff do you specialize in your study of history? So I, I studied the history of American empire, which grew out of my dissertation, which was on masculinity and wars of 1898. And then I wrote a book after that on globivore consumption, on literal like buying into empire. And then my third book is on Champaign-Urbana. It's called The Heartland in American History. And you might think, what does that have to do with empire? But you should read the book and find out because it's a global history, even though it starts from a local history perspective. Well, I actually have planned to ask you a couple of questions about that. So, you know, I'm originally from Michigan, and I always thought of myself as being from the heartland, although I've lived on the East Coast my pretty much my entire adult life. So is the heartland a place? Is it a way of thinking? What is it? People often think the heartland is a place, and it's used as a geographic word, but you can't pinpoint it on a map because nobody agrees on what the boundary should be. So one of the things that I wanted to explore in the book was the political usage of the concept heartland and how it has sort of mythological stature in American public discourse and what that means. And my general take on it is often used in an exclusionary way to designate like who the insiders of the country are and then implicitly who the outsiders are, what's real America, what's quintessential America. So in the book, I went on kind of like two tracks, and one of the tracks was grappling with the myth and all the baggage attached to the term, and then the other track is like the history of the place. So I I grapple with things like the invention of locality, which didn't exist before settler colonists came in and proclaimed themselves local for political purposes. I think about things like borderlands and how the Midwest has been a place in the middle. And and I focus on, I think I said earlier, on Champaign County as my starting point. So I I focus on the rural Midwest. I want to make that clear. But I think about things like how beef production involved importing blooded, very expensive animals from Canada, which were in herd books and had pedigrees and aristocratic names, but also it involved importing animals from Mexico for fattening purposes and how farmers in the Midwest weren't just in between East and West, but were between North and South and were deeply involved in thinking about what those relationships should be, what border crossings should be allowed and prohibited and regulated and how to fit the middle of the country into kind of a hemispheric context. And I do a lot with racialized animals. I have a whole pa- a chapter on Anglo-Saxonist pigs 
which counters the idea of the Midwest as being isolationist by thinking about various forms of agrarian solidarity politics and deep invocation with the British Empire. I have a chapter that plays on the idea of flyover states, which coastal people often you know, ridicule the rural Midwest. Yeah, actually, I was going to ask you about that, because like when people refer to it as flyover state, because like I said, I've been on the East Coast most of my adult life, it really sort of irks me because it's so dismissive. And that's one of the reasons you take the word heartland and say, no, no, I'm from a good place. We're with good people. And you can't just fly over us. Yeah, so I play with airspace there. Like, what does it mean to be flown over? And so part of it is like, what is the view from the ground looking up? But it's also about like, there are deep histories of aviation in the Midwest. You think about barnstorming, that has to do with the rural origins of a, a lot of flight. And even before that, things like long distance balloon races, you wouldn't launch those by the ocean. <laughs> the balloon would go down over water, right? Yeah, would be bad. So there are aerial histories, early wireless telegraphic communication. And then one of the most interesting things to me was actually bird issues, ornithological issues, because farmers relied on birds for insect pest control, as well as for um, migratory birds for protein, like hunting ducks, geese, and you know, a lot of birds that are protected now. And they became major constituents for bird protection legislation in the early 20th century. And also then, as connected to that, deeply invested in trying to figure out what migratory routes were, realizing that they could protect birds in their own fields, hmm. but that was of limited utility. So that's part of thinking about like what airspaces meant. And for people in the middle of the continent who, for long periods of time, it was really difficult to move through land, which was swampy and hard to traverse until it was drained. And you should know that massive engineering works that most people don't know about that undergird the wet prairie, that channel all the water out of the fields and fast track it into the Gulf of Mexico. But before that engineering happened, really difficult to travel via land and then also complicated traveling via water. But airspace for rural people in the Midwest was always something that kind of suggested direct connections to um, far parts of the world. And military aviation was also something I look at in that chapter because that took off here, too. Yeah, because there's more than a couple Air Force Base in the Midwest. Yeah. So I'd like to go back to one of the things that you mentioned about locality. So are you talking about people saying, oh, we're locals and you're not? And the definition of who's a local and who's not? Because we're in a period of time in history where people are wrestling with who belongs where. And certainly people have opinions about that. So does your view of locality have anything to do with, historical view of locality have anything to do with some of the struggles we're having now as a nation? Yeah, and the book came out in the last administration when there was a lot of talk about wall building and inclusion and exclusion that's a bit more muted now, but it actually well predates those particular discussions. And I got going on the topic because I moved to Illinois from Boston, where I'd been teaching before I came here. It was around the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall, and everybody was beginning to think about globalization. And I'd been reading all the literature that was emerging on the topic. And it wasn't until I landed here and turned on the radio, and I got the weather forecast for China, Argentina, and Brazil, which were connected to commodities production, the commodities market, that I thought, like, I don't know where I landed. And in all this stuff I've been reading, there was a politics to it and a geography to it that I had been sort of oblivious of, which was that there were some places that were more global than others. And those places were coastal areas, 
world cities, borderlands places, in some cases, like tourist sites, military bases, like smaller scale places. And then there were places that were left behind implicitly, like Appalachia, the Great Basin, and the rural Midwest. And so it was like realizing that there are histories of connection that I didn't know about, made me curious about the place where I landed. And then thinking about the politics of that, because like cosmopolitanism was highly valued, and localism denigrated, like the locals are the people you look down on and, and kind of disdain for the limited perspectives. And so to be local wasn't necessarily in those kind of early conversations about globalization, a positive thing, even though then what I talk about in the first chapter is how being able to claim locality can also be a power claim, right? In the context of settler colonialism and saying that the indigenous people who I forced out are nomadic in nature and therefore have no place claims. And I literally own the place and have place claims and indigenous people no longer have them. Then that has kind of a different politics too. So has your study of the differences between the coasts and the heartland and contrasting your experience going to Yale, teaching in Boston and now teaching in Illinois, giving you a different perspective on the educational institutions you've been part of? Framing it a little bit as a geographic question. Or it could be a mentality question, too. But I think it's also an institutional question, right? Yeah, sure. So I see it mostly as like a private Ivy League quality institution Mm -hmm. versus a large land-grant state institution. I think in terms of my work life, that's how I am experiencing the difference. And I have to say, Illinois, just to be a bit of a booster, we have a tremendous library. It goes back and forth. It's either the second or the third largest academic library in the country, you know, depending on the year and how you're counting the volume. So in terms of resources, we have just some amazing resources on campus. But the experience of being here is very different. In part, I think the student body is a bit different. It's larger, it's more diverse than our class was at Yale. And we have things on campus like massive engineering school, vet med school, things like that, that kind of changed the campus experience a little bit. And my recollection of Yale was that the humanities were just so well supported and so popular among Yale undergrads, with history being, for example, a very popular major, even though it didn't happen to have been mine. And my experience now in a different kind of institution that is selling itself as a STEM institution is that the humanities often feel a little bit left behind. In the context across the country, this is not unique to my institution, of humanities majors being in general in decline with the whole generation of students who from day one have been told STEM, 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 STEM and often being economically really, really pressed and under huge parental pressure and self-driven pressure to go into fields that they think will be more lucrative, and they assume that these are the STEM, especially like engineering fields. And what that means for us is for other history departments, a real struggle to recruit students and to sell our discipline to make the case for the value of a humanities education. And I have to say, as an undergrad, I just felt like it was in the air. Everybody seemed to assume that a humanities education um, was important. And it was just a feeling of like everybody understood the value, I guess, of of that aspect of Yale education. Yeah, I think, well, 
But we'll see whether the pressures you're talking about will translate into current students. I don't know. There's a very interesting book. I think it's called Degrees of Separation, where a sociologist interviewed Yale students and Southern Connecticut students and asked them the exact same questions. And their view on why they went to college was unbelievably different. So I commend that book to you because it puts its finger right on what you're talking about. So how do you place the study of history within the context you just described to make sure people understand its relevance and the importance to have a more well-rounded view. It's one thing to make the widget work. It's a different thing if you're making the widget work in a context that you understand. And so the consequences you might be able to predict. I mean, I guess in part, when we recruit students to the majors, they're very interested in career paths. So a lot of it is a whole variety of careers that might follow from a history degree, some of which are more obvious than others, right? Like we have a lot of students who go into law as a career. We also have a large secondary ed component to the major. So we have placed a lot of students in teaching positions. But one of the things I love about my Yale education is I know people who are history majors who are now like MDs and who've gone down career paths who are different from what you might expect and who report that studying History in particular, but I think it applies to the humanities in general, has been invaluable to them. For example, you know, I'm thinking my classmate Liz Rourke, who's a doctor, having been a history major, once told me that a lot of her job involves getting people's stories, right? When they come in for medical treatment, you have to understand them as people and they narrate what's going on to you. And if you can listen carefully and read between the lines and know what the follow-up questions are, and you have that sense of empathy that history teaches, that can be hugely valuable, even though you also then have to have the medical and scientific skills to know what to do with the follow-up. And then I think more generally on the campus, I think that just the recent threats to American democracy with the attack on our whole electoral system on which our democracy is based, I think underscores the importance of the kind of civic education that history can offer. And then the, just the challenges that are so significant that are facing us in terms of how do we live in a multiracial democracy with like long histories of oppression and injustice and how can we move forward to a more equitable future? You can't do that if you're oblivious to the past, right? So I think a lot of students who I am seeing in my classrooms then who are drawn to history either to meet gen ed requirements or into the major or minor it's contemporary politics and their concerns about U.S. democracy, some of the more global interests, and also just interest environmental issues, issues of sustainability, and you know wanting to figure out backstories and just not only backstories about environmental change, but also histories of collective action or political mobilizations. Because I think if you can't see other possibilities you may have a harder time imagining what your possibilities might be, the possibilities of your generation or your country or the world in which you inhabit. And we don't really have a lab in which to try out different possibilities. Right, right, exactly. Other than the past, which is our lab, right, which provides different examples that people can draw on for inspiration, for you know, lessons what not to do, and, and for a sense of what other possibilities could be. So I think that's a motivator now for the, for the study of the field. And then there are, of course, all the skills, right? You know, like close reading, being able to write and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. We just had an election today that we're recording this on November 2nd. 
where the school board was a hotly contested election in our town. And a lot of it had to do with how people were going to teach history. And none of the discussion was actually about historical methodology, close reading, source selection, contextualization, some of the things that I'm sure you, you teach about. So how do you think we should be framing the question of how to teach history in our society right now? Yeah, so it's just so terrifying to me that different state legislatures are passing laws against the teaching of critical race theory. And I guess if what they're thinking about is some kind of indoctrination, you know, that's happening to kindergartners, maybe I would sympathize with that. But that's not what's happening in our classrooms. You know, to be totally clear, that is not a massive trend or, or pattern. And it's also incredibly chilling for people who are providing evidence-based analysis of U.S. history. And it's just an effort to kind of shut down open-eyed awareness of what our national past has been. And so then what to do now, you know, I guess historians are doing their utmost, try to convey to wider publics about their research and their field and the nature of their scholarship and teaching. But the frustrating thing is just feeling like their audiences that are existing in their own kind of media universes that are getting totally different kinds of information and from my perch is completely erroneous, distorted, white supremacist in many cases, if not all cases, information, then how do we bridge that divide and reach out to audiences who really don't want to hear a professor, much less a high school teacher perhaps, you know, kind of talk about our daily lives as teachers, right? Like what is actually happening in our classrooms. And yeah, I hope you have some media people on to talk about that because I think that issue goes beyond, you know, our capacities as teachers to fully address. It's a truly a political question. And I think how to have a persuasive conversation, is something that we're going to wrestle with. And some of the people on the podcast, I hope we'll have uh, views about how we do it well. I just did an outside review. This is something we, you know, sometimes do is like different members of a discipline might go visit a different department and, you know, kind of study what's going on in the department and write up a report that they and their deans and provosts can look at. And I was just part of a team that looked at a department in the state of Iowa where the legislature has passed one of these laws. And undergrads who we spoke to in, in the meetings were saying, you know, like, they feel like they can't ask the questions they want to ask in class. They feel like, you know, they don't want to get their professors in trouble. They don't want to get themselves in trouble. And it's had a really chilling effect on pedagogy. And, you know, this is supposed to be a free society, but people are feeling like they cannot talk about race or other painful subjects because it's, like, prohibited by the legislature. And why more people are not up in arms about this is baffling to me. It is baffling, and I wonder if whether or not this is going to make private education even more important, which is sort of the, probably not what the people who are pushing this agenda want. Maybe it is. I don't know. And that can go two ways, right? You know, so people who feel like, well, the public school system is repressive might opt out. But in other contexts, people might feel like, I don't want my kid indoctrinated. And they'll opt out, like, for the opposite reason. And then where are you going to have that kind of middle where people from different places in the political spectrum come together in a kind of common public school classroom 
that it's not a matter of two polarized school systems, but a, a place where, you know, students can learn to talk to each other and listen to each other, yeah, and kind of hammer things down. No, that's true. Or if they think that people think that they're living in a system that's not fair to them because of their perception of what's happening. If you become so unmoored from some common understandings of history and facts, it's hard to have a real conversation. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying the conversation. Please remember that this podcast is being brought to you by the 35th reunion of the greatest class Yale College has ever known, the great class of 1987. Our reunion will be in New Haven, Connecticut, June 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th in Pearson College. We hope to see you there. Now, back to the conversation. So how do you think about your teaching then? Because I think that not in this context, but you seem to spend a lot of time just worrying about how to be a good teacher, which I don't know if that's what they teach you when you're getting your PhD, but it seems like that's something that you take very seriously. So how do you think about your role as a teacher? So I just came off of a term as director of undergrad studies for my department, which was really hard in the pandemic because we went all remote. You know, we had a few in-person classes, but we were overwhelmingly remote. And our students were isolated. Some were at home, some were on campus, but not going into the building in real-time meeting with their teachers and with their classmates. And economic precarity is huge in my neck of the woods with a lot of students suffering from like food insecurity, in some cases homelessness, with a lot of things that are going on with their families, with unemployment, with sickness, with death, with, you know, needing to cover child care for younger siblings, for elder care is just crushing sometimes when you realize the things that they are grappling with. And then that affects our role, I think, is educators, right? Because it's hard to educate students who are processing all these really difficult things. So I think one of the lessons that I took away from the high pandemic was, you know, more compassion and flexibility towards students. So a little bit less of, you know, you missed three classes and you're going to basically do poorly in terms of your grade and in my class. But finally, like, why are you missing class? And are there ways that we can have more makeup exercises or you can zoom in or somehow accommodate you if you're really dealing with some pretty serious stuff? And then just more awareness, I guess, also to different learning styles when we went all remote and, you know, we're trying to figure out what worked for different um, students. And then in terms of, you know, just other teaching issues, I think I always try to connect past to present a little bit, uh, especially for gen ed students who they're forced into our classes. They often don't want to be there. Underscoring the relevance of history is a useful thing. And I have to say, I'm going through some of these painful things that we're dealing with, like repression of speech, but it's also good for history, right? You know, because more people become interested in it if they feel like this is a hot political issue or, you know, like, <laughs> what are officials trying to hide? Then there will be a certain segment of the student body that wants to find out more about it. And recent issues like taking down Confederate monuments has been something, you know, that is some circles a hot but political issue, but it also helps get students more curious and invested in my time period, the 19th century, when they realize it's not over, it's being fought out now in our memorial landscape, as well as in its, you know, legacies for um, inequality. One other question on the teaching topic. Is there anything that coming out of the pandemic is a positive change you think universities will continue? 
I could see, for instance, some aspects of remote learning or videotaping classes for people who, like you say, can't show up for a, one reason or another might be helpful. Is there any positives? Well, for me, the biggest positive is being back in the classroom because everyone is so grateful to be back that they're just like, they're just falling out of their seats trying to talk, right? They're just so excited. They're like more involved in class discussions than they have ever been before in my professional career. You know, there's an appreciation, right, that may not have existed before when students have always gone to school, you know, since they were in preschool and it's like yet another year of school and it's no big deal. But if they don't have it for a year, get it again, they, there is a certain uh, like awareness of just how special and precious it is to have a chance to be with other people in a learning place and in real time, you know, be able to talk about things. So, so that's been a joy of this fall. And I'm, I should say, I feel really lucky because my campus has a vaccine mandate with a massive testing program for people who cannot get vaccinated and a mask mandate. And I know there are other people, and, and not just higher ed, but like K-12 ed, who aren't that fortunate. And going to work is a very stressful thing because they don't know, you know, am I going to get COVID today and then bring it home to my family members? So I feel tremendous gratitude to my institution, you know, for being concerned about my health and well-being and the well-being of other people in the um, community. But I think with the question about like technology, I think we're all much better with the tech now. And we are realizing we have a lot of students who do like the asynchronous, self-paced learning. And so I think we'll be in perpetuity offering some more courses of that nature to kind of reach out to that segment of students, right, who just, you know, say, I'm working like a lot of hours every week and I really only have time to focus on my schoolwork, you know, late at night, weekends, whatever. And if they have an asynchronous course, they can just nail that gen ed when they have time to do it. They can do it on a 16-week basis. They can do it on an 18-week basis, depending on their schedule. You know, that's been something that we've learned about. One concern I have is just our resources. So I think expectations have gone up and students expect that we can accommodate them. And if, you know, they don't make it to class, we'll be able to post a beautifully edited lecture video that they can watch at their convenience. And, you know, that's not necessarily an easy thing to do. Or they can zoom in and it's going to be a great learning experience. And if the class is a hybrid class, I have to say it's harder than either all remote or all in person. And the quality of of their participation, if students are zooming in, technically is harder, I think, for them to fully participate. It's harder for the teacher to keep an eye on what's going on in the classroom and on the Zoom screen. Yeah, and that's the kind of thing we're wrestling. It's not all silver lining. Oh, no, no. In some ways, I'm trying to learn because we're wrestling with how do we have the workplace going forward? And are there aspects of what happened that allowed people to perform at a higher level and be happier? Because, you know, I'm seeing the return to work. And a big part of my job is teaching the younger attorneys how to become full-fledged, older, and more seasoned attorneys and thinking about how you engage with people. And it, I agree, it's much better if you're in person. I'm just trying to find out if there are ways that we can learn positive takeaways from some of the things we've we've been through. Yeah, there are other like little techniques, right, that we've picked up um, in part through training on how to teach a remote class. You know, so just things, this is so in the weeds, but just as one teeny tiny example for like a huge lecture class, I've always fielded all the questions individually. 
And when we went remote, they had a little teaching academy on my campus, like how to go remote. And one of the tricks I learned is you set up a discussion chat board. And for all the questions of general nature, the students post it to the discussion board and their classmates can answer it, which wasn't really the case for me. You know, they didn't really do it. But then I could answer it and the whole class can see the question and the answer, Mm -hmm. which means you're not hitting, sending the same message to 10 different students. So there are a lot of like smaller little tweaks, you know, that everybody picked up during the pandemic that will be beneficial going forward. And it is beneficial. It's not just that it saves the instructor time, but all the students who might be a little bit too shy to ask the question will see the question and the answer, and it will benefit the, the people who didn't wouldn't have asked the question, but now can see, oh, yeah, I should think through this, and, and here's the answer that will help me do that. Getting back to your area of expertise, seeing sort of where we are in the world geopolitically, what do you think people should be reading to or thinking about to make sense of the historical moment we're in now? They should be reading history. They could read my book <laughs> on the heartland or my earlier ones. I mean, it kind of depends on like what people's priorities are, right? Are they... And of course, all these things overlap, but concerned about climate change and environmental sustainability? Are they concerned about racial justice, which of course intersects with climate change, but reading in that area? Are they concerned about economic inequality, which is just so palpable in the circles that I am running in these days? I am the kind of person who is loath to say, you have to read this one thing. It's like when students come to me and they're like, what should I read? I'm like, well, tell me about yourself, right? What are you curious about? What are your interests? What do you want to read about? And then we'll take it from there. Got it. So we've gotten to the point of our podcast where we give you the lightning round, a handful of rapid response questions. If there's one aspect of Yale you think every school should have, every university, what would it be? Well, I like the college system. I I liked having the opportunities of a larger campus, but I liked having a home to go back to. And so I think that, to me, was like the core of Yale, that a lot of other institutions have done that and did that before Yale, but that I think is just a real priceless part of the Yale experience. We have a reunion coming up in June. What things do you really want at the reunion? I want to be able to sit around and talk to people. I've been to a couple reunions, so not so many recently because, you know, now that I'm living in Illinois, it's a longer distance to travel than I was when I was back on the East Coast. But the reunions that I've gone to in the past have just been such a joy. And and the moments I remember best are just sitting around outside, you know, late at night, with classmates I knew, but their friends and their friends' friends, people who just happened to walk by who I never knew, and just talking to them and finding out like what they're up to, what they're interested in, what their passions are. And I, I think it's because I live in a small college town, and most of the people I hang out with are affiliated in some way or another with my employer, right, with the University of Illinois. And it's shop talk all the time. And it's so narrow and it's just interesting because they come from different disciplines and are working on different things. But it's also just such a small set of conversations in some ways. And the thing I loved about the last reunion was that people were from, you know, they ended up in all kinds of different places, different walks of life, different activities. And every single conversation was like mind blowing to me. So I, I would love to have that happen again. Completely agree. 
That is terrific. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. And it was really a pleasure talking to you. I look forward to seeing you in June. Yeah, I hope to be there. And thanks so much for interviewing our classmates and producing this series. Great. In a world where people were isolated by a pandemic, forced to live their lives remotely in an endless parade of Zoom meetings, one Yale College class dared to break the mold. The Yale College class of 1987 is planning what no Yale College class has ever tried before, at least not for a while, an in-person reunion, June 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th, 2022, we will be gathering in Pearson College. Be there for engaging discussions, nightly revelry, and way too much New Haven pizza, if there ever could be such a thing. We'll wrestle with age-old questions like, maybe I look better in a mask, what do you think? Who or what is a bula? What in the world am I going to do with no kids in the house? These questions and more will be answered at our 35th college reunion. Be there. That's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. This has been the Y87 podcast, the official podcast of the greatest class that Yale College has ever known. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any comments or questions or would like to appear as a guest, please email me at timothy.p.harkness at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you.